Welcome back, everybody, to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I'm your host for this episode, Eric, joined by my fellow co-host, Sean. Hello, everybody. All right, so this episode, we're going to be talking about the Keddy Cabin murders. The suggestion for this episode came from our latest Patreon poll, where we asked our supporters which unsolved mystery we should focus on next. At the time of this recording, the Keddy Cabin murders barely edged out the other topics, so big thanks to everyone on Patreon who voted and helped us decide to discuss this case. So, for those of you who have seen the 2008 movie The Strangers, you might enjoy this episode a lot. Um, In the movie, uh, it's actually one of the most horrific films that I've ever watched. And it's pretty good because it doesn't really have a tremendous amount of gore in it, and it's still really scary. But basically a young couple visits a cabin in the woods and they're tormented by a family of masked assailants and these stalkers are not merely there to kill but rather to intimidate toy with and eventually end the life of a couple of non-deserving innocent vacationers so without you know giving too much of the movie away by the end the identities of the masked murderers remain a mystery yeah, this the Caddy murders is certainly a disturbing crime and one that has stuck with me for many years. I first read about it a good amount of years ago, I think when I was a teenager, and I thought back on it and read up on new pieces of evidence and theories about the case from time to time. When I was younger, the thoughts of the Caddy murders, along with other influences like scary movies like the Blair Witch Project and just stories about bear attacks and stuff like that, has always given me a slight fear of camping or being in isolated areas and Eric when we watched the uh the strangers one time which is loosely based on the Keddy murders loosely loosely yeah uh that just added more fuel to the fire and I really can't think of anything more disturbing thing about than being in a isolated area or cabin and then having you and your loved ones just murdered so this is definitely a disturbing crime one of the more disturbing ones that we've covered yeah Pretty terrifying concept to be out in the middle of nowhere and you think you're alone or you think you're alone with your family member or whomever or your kids. Um, but shortly thereafter, you realize that you're not alone. There's actually somebody watching you. So um, give a, we'll, we'll start with a little bit of background on the Kenny murders. So they're also called the Kenny Cabin murders, and this is a famous quadruple homicide that remains unsolved to this day. It took place in April of 1981 in Keddie, California, where Glenna, who's more commonly known as Sue Sharp, and her five children had been renting a cabin there since November of the year before. Keddie itself is a very small and sparsely populated area in Plumas County with a population of less than 100 Keddie was once a railroad town, but its economy and usefulness kind of plummeted throughout the years. Several owners of the area tried to make it into a bit of a tourist attraction and resort town, but the projects never really succeeded. At the time the crime was taking place, new owners had taken steps to attempt to clean up Keddie a little bit, including overhauling and reopening some of the attractions of the town, such as some bars and restaurants and trying to get rid of the squatters and the drug dealers that landed in the area. However, the county as a whole still had a drug problem, 
and there are claims of corruption in local law enforcement, and both of these will play a bit of part into the murders later on. Sounds a little bit like southwestern Virginia, where I'm from, just drugs and squatters. And yeah. Bad stuff going on all over the place. I'm sure you have these little areas all over the place where you just have these rundown towns that are used to be you know, notable, but once the economy left, you just get criminals moving and squatters, stuff like that. So shortly before the crime would take place, Sue Sharp and her five children had moved from the East Coast to California. As Sue was filing for divorce at the time from her abusive husband. The Sharp children were John, Sheila, Tina, Ricky, and Greg. And the family had driven across the country over the summer before settling down first in Quincy before moving over to Keddie where they would be renting a cabin. And though their lives had been pretty rough back in Connecticut, no one could have imagined what was about to happen to them in the spring of 1981. So on the evening of April 11th, Tina, the youngest daughter, returned to her cabin, which was cabin number 28, from a long night of watching television with her nearby friend in cabin 27. And her 15-year-old brother John and his friend Dana Wingate also came home from a night in the nearby town of Quincy. And there the three children and Sue, the mother, would come to meet their gruesome and deadly end. The next morning, the eldest daughter, Sheila, came home from a night out with friends to discover the bound, bloodied, and deceased remains of three of the victims. Sheila quickly searched the area to discover that the two remaining sons and their friend were in fact still alive and well in an adjacent bedroom. Now that fact had always been one of the oddest parts of this case to me. It would seem if the assailant wanted to just kill everyone there, there would be no reason to leave several potential witnesses alive, even if they were pretty young. Um, however, the two young sharp boys, Rick and Greg, along with their friend who was sleeping over, were left pretty much completely unharmed. It isn't even known for sure if the killer or killers even checked out the back bedroom or knew the kids were in there. However, there was some blood stains on the door leading to that room, so it would seem likely that it was checked at least once at some point or another during the night. If there is any silver lining to this crime, it is that these three young ones were spared. Otherwise, I think we'd have a family massacre pretty much on the scale that would rival the Velisca Axe murders, which we just recently covered. In any case, to avoid causing trauma to the young boys, Sheila opened the back window and kind of helped guide the children climbing out so that they wouldn't have to walk past the main room of the cabin and seeing the bodies of their families or friends uh, that were lying there dead. So that was pretty quick thinking on her part. Yeah, it is interesting you mentioned that. The boys were 5 and 10 years old, so it's not like there was no possibility that they would be able to identify and incriminate the murderers um, if provided the opportunity to do so. So it's definitely a, a potential loose end on the killer's part that could have been pretty easily tied up, um, but was not for unclear reasons. So upon removing the boys, Sheila continued her search for her younger sister, Tina. So, as Sheila came around the house, she found the corpses of her beloved family members, and it was clear that the encounter had been particularly violent. 
The brother John was found face up with his hands and feet tied with electrical cord and medical tape, which also wrapped around Dana's feet. Both of the boys' faces and necks were covered in blood. Sue was also tied with electrical cord. However, she was covered by a yellow blanket. One interesting thing to note about this part is that several different types of medical tape were used in binding of the bodies, at least at least two different types. Uh, the number I've seen around is that a total of 22 feet of medical tape was used. However, the Sharp family didn't have any medical tape in the cabin at the time, so it must have been brought along with the assailants after the crimes had taken place. Yeah, so this kind of indicates to me that the murder was probably premeditated. So if they'd planned enough ahead to bring tape to tie up the three, you know, young, healthy individuals who could have, you know, potentially made an escape. Um, so at least we can rule out some sort of crime of opportunity, I suppose. And this also might suggest potentially that the killer was known to the victims. Yeah, it could be on the other hand that, I mean, there probably was some planning, but if it was kind of more spontaneous, it could suggests that the party involved lived close by enough that they could or at least one of them run and get something to to bind the victims with so that's something we'll kind of get into more later on in the episode so the three victims were murdered by various means including strangulation bludgeoning with at least two different types of hammers and stabbing with different knives so Sue had also been bludgeoned by Daisy Powerline 880 rifle, while Dana had been strangled to death by hand. Several of the weapons were found at the scene, including a bent steak knife, a butcher knife, and a claw hammer. The bent steak knife was lying on the floor, while the butcher knife and claw hammer were neatly placed on a table at the entrance to the living room. And just as with the medical tape that we just talked about previously, some of the weapons used were brought along by the killer, which again suggests that this was a more premeditated type of crime. Uh, Autopsy reports showed that there were two different hammers used of two distinct sizes, and not just the sole one that was found in the cabin. So there was another hammer missing somewhere that had also been taking place in the murders. Also, the daisy rifle used to bludgeon Sue did not belong to the family, but again, must have been brought along instead, and that was never recovered afterwards at all. Now, Bloody Knife was also found tossed into a trash bin that was a bit away from the cabins at the nearby Keddy General Store. And just from the range of weapons and the different methods used to kill the occupants of the cabin, it would seem pretty definite that at least several people were involved in this crime, and it wasn't just one lone killer acting by himself. Yeah, that and the fact that there were, you know, three or four people in the room at the time, the victims, of course. So it would be difficult for a lone murderer to come into a room and round up multiple people and tie them up. So not not entirely impossible. I mean, you could get, grab one and use them right. as a hostage. But still, it just seems to make sense that there were multiple murderers in this sort of scenario because they were tied up. Yeah, well, especially when you have two young teenage young men, which are pretty much the last type of victim you want just because they can fight back. Right. Um, it would, just because we didn't see any gunshots or anything, it probably suggests that they didn't bring guns along to threaten them with. So they probably did have these other 
I guess one of them had the rifle, but they had to threaten them in other means besides waving guns around. Yeah. I'm thinking, and I don't know this for a fact, I didn't read this anywhere, but I'm thinking the Daisy Power Line is probably like a pellet rifle. I don't think Daisy really makes any. Yeah, I believe it was a pellet or air rifle of some kind. I've read that the crime scene, as it was discovered by the police, was kind of staged. As in, whoever carried out the crimes moved the bodies a bit from where they were actually killed to how they would be found later. And then also left behind certain objects to kind of throw off law enforcement. Also, apparently neither the butcher knife or the bent steak knife that was found was used in any of the mortal wounds of the three deceased people there. Some sources have tried to dramatize things a bit, even more than they need to be, by claiming that one of the killers had stabbed one of the bodies so hard that the steak knife bent. However, in reality, it looks like it was only used to cause several shallow cuts on Johnny's body, and it was after he was already dead. In fact, several apparent knife wounds to both Johnny and Sue didn't even cut deep enough to bleed, showing that these attacks were more superficial than deadly or mortal wounds. So, though the reasoning behind the actions is unclear, the timeline of attacks seem to show that Sue, Johnny, and Dana were murdered first. There are bodies then rearranged in the main room of Cabin 28, and then Johnny's legs would be tied up to Dana's corpse, and Sue's body would be lightly bound and covered as well. So, Doug Thomas, who was the Plumas County Sheriff at the time of the murderers, was quoted as having said, Whoever did this, and there was more than one person, had to have blood all over them. Thomas moved on to a new job shortly after the incident, and has since retired. Now he's in his 70s. Yeah, sometimes you hear the term, like the place was a bloodbath, but this cabin really was. If you see crime scene photos, there is just blood all over the place. It's splattered all over the floors, on the furniture, on the walls. It's it's very disturbing. Uh, during the initial investigation of the crime scene by the county sheriff's deputies, they would discover that the youngest daughter, Tina, was nowhere to be found in or around Cabin 28. In the following years, it is estimated that about 4,000 man-hours would be spent by law enforcement trying to find both the culprits and the missing young girl. During this time, there were plenty of speculation and rumors on both what had happened to Tina, if she was alive or not, and on who was behind these gruesome crimes, and what possible motives did they have to kill innocent people in such a grisly way. There have been many theories on why Tina was taken away, perhaps she was kidnapped and possibly even the main target of the attack, or she could have been killed at the cabin but her body taken away to kind of throw off the case, make the police spend more time searching for a missing girl instead of simply looking for a group of murderers. And just as with many other facets of this case, the cause behind Tina's disappearance is a mystery as well. So three years after the murders first took place in April of 1984, part of a skull was found 63 miles away near Feather Falls in an adjacent Butt County. This discovery led to a further search, which turned up part of a jawbone and several other bone fragments, all of which turned out to belong to the missing Tina. So in terms of suspects, kind of based on what we've alluded to so far, sort of suggests that whoever was responsible for the crimes was either, you know, a professional or at least not completely new to the concept of murder. 
So there would be several suspects that were named in this case. However, Marty Smart is one name that consistently rises above all the others. And Smart was a neighbor of the Sharp family and, coincidentally, a close friend of the local sheriff. Marty lived two cabins down with his wife, Marilyn, and a friend named Bo Babid, an ex-con and supposed hitman for the Chicago and Las Vegas mobs. And Bo had recently moved in with Marty and Marilyn Smart. Marty had a troubled marriage, and there are theories that Sue might have interfered with their marriage somehow, upsetting Marty and causing him to commit the murders out of rage. Despite questioning and considerable amounts of evidence, no arrest was ever made, however. It is known that Marty, his wife Marilyn, and Bo did stop at Cabin 28 and asked Sue if she wanted to come along with them to a local bar, which she declined, and that was the night before the murders took place. It is also worth noting that it was Marty and Marilyn's son, Justin, who was sleeping over with the two youngest sharp boys in the back room. Now, that night at the bar, Marty was seen become very aggressive and upset, complaining about the music being played. Now, after the trio left and went back to their cabins, Marilyn would go to bed, while Marty claims that he made a call to the bar manager to complain again before heading back out with Bo to drink some more. During the investigation that followed, Marilyn mentioned to the police that she actually left Marty the day after the murders and that he had violent tempers and would often abuse her, but not much came out of that. The Department of Justice interrogated both Marty and Bo a little while after the crimes took place. During his interviews, Bo made a series of clear lies and exaggerations that should have been instantly questioned further, but the DOJ detectives didn't even bother, really. At one point, Bo told them that he knew which cabin the murders took place in, yet just a few minutes later, he denied this and said they would have to point it out to him because he didn't know where Sue was staying. Bo also lied about when he and Marty went to the bar. First, he was saying it was around 9 to 10 p.m., but then again, shortly afterwards, changed it to midnight after he heard that was around when the crimes took place. He also said that they had never talked to Sue that night, which it is known that they did. None of the discrepancies in his interview statements was ever questioned further or followed up again by the DOJ agents. Marty Smart had his own confusing remarks in his interviews. At one point, Marty told the investigators that his son Justin could have seen something the night of the murders without me detecting him. Though this would seem like quite the damning confession to make, neither of the investigators picked up on the statement and continued on. Marty then told the detectives that he heard a hammer was used in the crime. He would then go on to veer off the questions and state without prompting that his own hammer had gone missing just a few days before the murders. Perhaps most disturbing of all, Marty mentions that the murders had been overkill and that he would prefer to do it fast and just get out as quickly as possible. Now again, to reiterate, none of these bizarre and nearly confessional statements were ever followed up on by the two detectives. Marty was given a lie detector test with just a few basic questions that he did pass, and he was shortly afterwards let go. After this initial interviews with the two men, they were let go and would never be questioned again. Marty was allowed to move out of town shortly after the murders, and Bo would soon follow him as well. 
So just from the start, it seems kind of weird that you have these two guys, one who's clearly lying throughout the entire interview and the other one's making some kind of cryptic remarks about kind of having knowledge of the crimes that took place. And yet these two detectives really seem to dent bother at all yeah especially given that these are like people from the department of justice this isn't just like your run-of-the-mill county sheriff's office who's never encountered a murder scene before don't really know what they're doing Um, but it is pretty interesting to think that marty and Bo, after going to you know potentially um, um i am uh speculating here but after going to all the trouble of covering up the crime scene and doing all this stuff to throw people off their trail, that they do such a bad job in the actual interview with the investigators and say things that almost so obviously incriminate them. Right. Yeah, it's true that they apparently didn't leave behind any physical evidence. But again, in the days afterwards, you think they'd get their stories straight where it would seem any competent law enforcement officer would just pick apart these interviews like if you just read like the the statements they made it's just it's just glaring red flags and yet you know they were both just questioned there were no follow-up questions at all they just went through the list of questions they had and then just sent them out the door without any following actions so when you take in the strange nature of the interrogations the fact that the two primary suspects were immediately discarded and let go It certainly makes for a scenario in which many people over the years have claimed that police corruption or influence of some kind was in place to help cover up the crimes of these two men. The fact that Sheriff Thomas suddenly announced his resignation from the department for unknown reasons just a few months after the murders and moved away also adds a bit more fuel to the fire in this theory. Following up this line of thinking, there has been a lot of speculation recently that the sheriff at the time, Doug Thomas, was corrupt and was involved with covering up the crime, or at least stalling the investigation. As we mentioned earlier, there were rumors that he and Marty Smart were actually good friends, and that the two even had lived together for a short period of time. Thomas now denies all of this, saying that Marty was never a friend of his, but only an acquaintance that he met a few times around town. Marty Smart's wife Marilyn had also said that when she was questioned about it, she didn't think that the two men were ever friends. And Thomas claims that the only interactions he ever had with a man was when Marty and his wife came in for counseling for their marital issues. Thomas, who had just finished up with his own divorce, said that he told them that he wasn't the man for the job, but he did sit down with them for a quick session. He also denies that Marty has ever stayed with him, again saying he barely knew the man before the crimes took place. With that said, there has been criticism of the investigation and the seemingly snail's pace it seemed to go in at the beginning. There were several seemingly obviously physical signs of evidence, including bloody prints, that somehow went unnoticed by the police for over a week. Add to that of people's complaints when they gave reports and statements to the police about potential suspects, which were never followed up on. About that, Doug Thomas says, There was no shortage of suspects. But suddenly now, everybody 35 years later have all figured out what happened, and that all the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable. It's what it is. Still, it would seem from his statements about the old case, his focus seems to be more on his reputation than his thoughts on the case itself. And while he does deny plenty of allegations that he was involved with the main suspect, Marty, or actively hid evidence... He doesn't really have much to say about the general complaints about how poorly the investigation as a whole was conducted. 
So in the last several years, there's been some new evidence that has surfaced regarding this murder case. So there was an anonymous call, and apparently around the time that the skull was found, um, this anonymous call was made to the police department about who the skull belonged to. Um, And this recording was just recently rediscovered a few years ago. And the tape was filed away somewhere in the sheriff's office where it remained forgotten for decades and decades. And the new investigators had no idea that through all the years, this whole time they had had this audio recording of the anonymous call from someone involved identifying the remains that were found in Butt County as those of Tina Sharp. So it took 10 days of searching through boxes to find it. And when it was found, the evidence envelope was still sealed. And it had never even been listened to up until recently. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous that you'll have this call that I guess was brought in, immediately ignored and just stored away. And you think that whoever had knowledge that this skull belonged to Tina had to either been one of the killers or someone who had firsthand knowledge, perhaps a friend of one of them who was confessed to or something. So you think if this was back in the day that the police should have been able to either recognize the voice or put the recording out so other people could recognize the voice and bring that person forward. Right. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, there's a lot of investigators out there who currently believe that there were a lot of people that weren't necessarily in on the murders themselves, but were probably aware of what was going on. Yes. Yeah. Um, Especially with the distribution of Tina's remains. Right. So in these new investigations that's kind of popped up in the past couple of years, Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood, who was the same age as Johnny and Dana at the time of the murders and knew them, has reopened the case in 2010 to both provide surviving family members with answers, as well as to help restore faith in the department, which has long been criticized for its failure in solving the crime when it happened, involving allegations of conspiracy and cover-ups. Hagwood stated once, There were many years when little or nothing was done on the Ketty investigation. There is not an expiration date on homicides, and to the extent that we have surviving siblings and family members, it is our fundamental obligation to understand who did this and why. To help with this case, Hagwood brought back retired investigator Mike Gamberg. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that not only was Hagwood the same age as the victims, but he actually went to school with them. And they actually, you know, participated in some sports together and did some work together and stuff. So he actually has a a little bit of a personal investment in solving this case. So Mike Gamberg is this new investigator that's just come on board. And he actually came upon a letter that was written by Marty to Marilyn. And in my opinion, probably one of the most damning pieces of evidence for Marty But the letter says, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Marty wrote, great, what else do you want? So Marilyn, who later remarried another man, claims to have never received this letter, but only learned of it long afterwards from investigators. She did, however, claim to recognize the handwriting, and did, in fact, attribute it to being Marty's. 
So this little factoid seems a little unusual to me. If I put myself in the shoes of a jealous ex-husband that went to the trouble of killing four people to prove something to a woman, only for my actions to be completely ignored, I would definitely ensure that my hate letter reached her. You know, So I think for her to say that she never saw this letter is probably uh, a bit of an exaggeration at best. I think a more plausible explanation is that she did receive the letter, but she was maybe just too scared to do anything about it for fear of retaliation, or perhaps she knew that the police wouldn't do anything to protect her anyway. Right. I mean, it could be that Marty was sending her a lot of letters, so it got to a point where she was just ignoring them, basically. I wasn't really bothering reading through them. So I guess that's one option where she just, you know, she's getting these letters and she's just ignoring them. But so we've seen several times where Marty is apparently confessing to the crimes. So we have this letter. We have a few statements made uh, during his one and only interrogation with the DOJ detectives earlier. Mike Gamberg also, I think, was alerted to I think it was like a counselor or psychologist and he came forward and said that marty had basically confessed the murder of sue sharp to him by the same time he said that he didn't know who murdered the other uh, people there at the camp so johnny and dana and then tina eventually so again you have three different instances where marty smart is pretty much confessing to being involved in the case somehow as for Gamberg's thoughts on the case, he doesn't believe that Sue was involved with the drug community and issues of the county. That was one theory that was going around a bit, was that Sue had gotten in trouble with the drug trafficking or drug dealing in the county, and this was kind of a revenge killing of a kind. But Mike Gamberg doesn't really buy into that. He said about her, Sue Sharp was a quiet woman. She was never that kind of individual. She was into her kids. She wasn't a drinker or a doper or anything like that. None of the things that people have theories about fit. As for a more plausible idea, Gamberg stated, I think Sue was involved with one of the suspect's wives and that she was counseling the wife about him and his abuse. I think this guy just went ballistic. So he was, of course, talking about Marty Smart, the most widely believed culprit of the murders. So later on, more recently in March of 2016, a hammer was taken into evidence that matches the description of one that suspect Marty Smart claims had gone missing from his cabin just two days before the murders. Sheriff Hagwood states the location that the hammer was found, it would have been intentionally put there. It would not have been accidentally misplaced. So this hammer that was found very closely matches the description of the hammer that was used during the murder. So it would be the second hammer that had, was not originally at the cabin. I think they like found it in the bottom of a lake or a pond or yeah, something. Yeah, they used like a guy with a metal detector found it, I think, on the, along the shorelines or something. Right. So that would seem like a place as if whoever the killer was tried chucking it into the lake, but it just kind of landed in the, the shallow part. So then, you know, 20 years later, this guy with a metal detector comes upon it. Right. It doesn't really fit the, the scenario where, oh, you're just walking around with your hammer and you misplace it in the middle of a lake. Yeah, because I know it's very common for people to walk around and hiking with a hammer in their hands. Uh, exactly. Uh, by all accounts, it is widely believed by many who have looked into this case deeply and investigated it 
that both Marty Smart and his ex-con friend Bo were, in fact, the murderers. Both Hagwood and Gamberg believe that they're close to identifying them as the killers. Hagwood said about them, It's a theory that we are working, to the degree possible, to conclude or dismiss. There is a disproportionate amount of evidence and information that tends to point in that direction. Though both these main suspects are dead, the investigators still hope and wish that if they can prove that they were in fact the killers, that it would bring a type of resolution to the case and perhaps uh, be a little comfort to the surviving family members. Yeah, absolutely. If I was, you know, Sheila and I was the only or one of a couple of family members that survived this event, I would definitely want to see their name smeared even after death. Um, but I did think it was a little bit interesting that, you know, this is probably, I'm trying to think back through all the episodes we've done. This is probably one of the murder cases, one of the few murder cases where the murderers have gone to such lengths to cover up their tracks and to try and throw people off of their trail and stuff. But it's interesting that, you know, it's, pretty clear cut that these are the only real suspects we have is right. Marty and his potential accomplice Bo. So there appears to be, you know, a motive and some substantial evidence to suggest that it was the pair or at least one of them. And I would tend to believe that uh, Bo with his connections to the mob would be involved because it appears again, that it wasn't poorly, it wasn't a poorly thought out murder and that whoever did it had some experience with this sort of thing. Unfortunately, though, in the first few weeks, there was nothing to tie them to the crime, and they were both simply set free and left the area. On the other hand, though, in their defense, it's easy to make claims that someone is a murderer when they are now dead and completely unable to defend themselves against the crime. Right, but you could go back and say that it's the police's, it's the police's fault that they didn't bring up this issue when they were still alive. Right. Given that these guys are dead and can't be here to negate the claims that are being made against them, it's just easier to pin this on somebody who's dead. That's true. Um, Regardless guess, of whose fault it is. Right. So I, I guess it's just up to this new investigation, whether if they will ever eventually find out true evidence that conclusively points to these two guys. Because there certainly seems to be a lot of it. Now... Yeah, we've we kind of been focusing on Marty and Bo, but Sheriff Hagwood isn't simply looking to tie up ends with these two suspects alone, but is also going after those that he believes either helped with the cover-up aftermath or had knowledge of the crime but never came forward with it. The department has identified six persons of interest who are all still alive at this point, who they say at the minimum had some type of information about the crimes and at the most actively participated in assisting in destroying evidence, and also helping get rid of Tina's remains. As Sheila Sharp, the daughter who originally discovered the bodies in Cabin 28, has been very grateful for the new work on the case, and has said there's been more done to solve the case in the past few years than there has been in the previous 32 years before that. So I guess my main question to get us started with a little bit of discussion about the case is why were Tina's bones found so far away from the original crime scene. Right, and years later, too. Right, because, I mean, the the bottom line is something about her was 
um, special, whether it was because she was young female um, or something a little bit deeper than that. Maybe she was the particular target, but her remains were not simply left with the other three. Right, that's a lot of people have been speculating that there must have been something special about Tina because why else, you know, you've already killed these people. Why bring along a potential witness or just somebody who can cause trouble for you? Where if you're only worried about killing them all and leaving no traces behind, you would think it'd be easier on them just to murder the girl at the spot. Well, I mean, we can't even assume that she wasn't dead and they just carried off her body for right. whatever reason. Yeah, that's a possibility. It could have been another part of this attempt to just throw people off their tracks and just do weird, random stuff to confuse the police. Right. Well, I think that's probably one of the main motives is that they probably thought that if they bring this girl along, again, we kind of alluded to it earlier in the episode where the police already didn't do a very good job at investigating but it spent a lot of time looking for a missing girl rather than focusing on the murders themselves. So they're kind of split. So in a way, that's probably what they were hoping to do is trying to throw off the cops and think that this was a, you know, some kind of planned abduction. So they were might have been thinking that Tina was the main target and thinking of possible people who could have harmed Tina and that the others were just collateral damage. Um, instead of if one of the others was and they just thought of this plan to take Tina on the spot and just hope that it would throw the police off their trail. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that that would probably, again, kind of require a lot of forethought and a lot of um, methodology behind this action. So this is probably somebody who's done it before. Um, if we're going with this scenario, I was thinking of a little bit of something a little bit more simplistic. I think, you know, Tina said she came home um, about 10 p.m. at night after a long night of watching TV. I think potentially that the murderer had already finished with the other three bodies or was maybe in the middle of it. And they were trying to get off the scene as quickly as possible. And they just decided to drag Tina with her. Um, You know, there's also the potential that she was sexually abused being a, a young teenage girl, stuff like that. It could be. Yeah, there is the exact timeline of what happened is not entirely known. Um, Johnny and Dana were last seen walking. I think they were hitchhiking back to the cabins around 9 or 10 that night. So some speculate that they could have arrived when the attacks were already happening. Like they opened the door and whoever was inside was already doing what they were doing. Or that they had just gotten home and then was quickly followed up by the murderers. And the same thing, I guess, could be seen with said with Tina is that we don't know when she got back to the cabin, how long afterwards did the attack take place? Were the guys already scoping out the cabin and saw her? Um, yeah, there's just a lot of questions about the exact timing and events of what happened, where it's hard to assume really what was what was the purpose of what was the main motive behind these attacks. So going along, one of my questions that. There are a couple of theories too, but again, I've, I've said it's one of my, the strangest parts of this case to me is why did the killers allow the three boys in the back room to live? So I think the first question we need to ask ourselves with this point is, you know, 
there, there's two possible scenarios to start us off. Either the murderers knew the boys who were in there and chose not to do anything, or they were completely unaware that the boys were even in there. Perhaps they were so caught up in their murder fest and their gore that they didn't even pay attention. Right. So we'll start there. What do you think? Again, it would have to depend on the motive behind the crimes and perhaps the professionalism in a way that if these killers were kind of random. So I would assume that if the attack was a more random thing and the killers knew what they were doing, if they were aware that these boys were in the back room, I don't think there's any way that they would let them be alive. So I would think that in that case, as you were saying, they just didn't check the back room. Maybe there wasn't really any noise coming back from there and they just didn't assume to check. Or you could have somebody who didn't really care if they got out or not. They wanted to kill a few people, but for some reason they had something to prevent them from killing these boys. Right. So, yeah, like you said, I mean, the two sharp boys were five and ten years old. So it's very, very possible that um, if they had witnessed something that they would be able to identify a murderer, which, of course, we know as of currently that that did not happen. Right. Um, So that being said, I would say it's unlikely that the two boys or um, I'm sorry, the three boys didn't know that there was a murder going on in the room next to them. So. You know, we have to kind of guess a little bit about would these boys go into the other room to investigate or would they just stay where they are? Now, I think a boy at 10 years old would probably um, go into the room and investigate. So all this, you know, is playing around in my head and I'm thinking there had to have been some sort of interaction. They had to have known that they were there. So to kind of get to my ultimate point of what I think happened, and I think this is a pretty common theory, as we noted earlier, it was Marty and Marilyn's son, Justin, who was playing with the smart boys. Right. So if we're saying that Marty and Bo were, in fact, the murderers, I think there's a pretty clear connection there that Marty likely would not have been able to obviously kill all three of the boys or even kill the two smart boys in front of his son. Mm-hmm. So he probably just... Maybe he locked the door or just walled them off from the whole thing altogether. Yeah, I think that'd be more likely because if it is Marty and again his son's in there, he can't really peek his head in and say, "Hey, everything's okay out here." Because the other, the sharp boys know who he is. He's their neighbor. If their murderer is Marty or Bo, I don't think there's any way that they could go into that bedroom because the sharp boys wouldn't have been able to recognize them instantly. And again, I don't think any of the three boys ever said anything about no one ever came into the room. So they were kind of oblivious to, you know, the murders that were that were taking place mostly. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good theory and explanation is that either Marty or Bo would not have killed them because Justin Smart was in there. So obviously neither of them would have wanted to harm him in any way. So the other thing I wanted to ask about is, you know, obviously we have all this evidence. How is it that the crime went unsolved even to this day? If you look at the crime scene photos and everything, there is a ton of, you would think, physical evidence all over the place. 
So we've kind of, I've brought up the similarity between this and the Velisca Axe murders. And in that episode, we talked about how some of these killers who they go on a kind of berserker mode or just do a very violent crime scene is that very often they're caught because in their frenzy, they leave behind physical evidence. Now, of course, then it was 1910 or something. So there wasn't really any DNA evidence back then. But this is in the 80s, so it's more advanced. Do you think that they would have been able to find something with all this chaos around, but still they didn't? But I think that has more to do with the investigation than with how clever the murderers were. And as Sheriff Hagwood has said about this, if the right things had been done, this thing would have been solved within weeks of the homicide. And as we've discussed, there's been a lot of missed opportunities. There was lost evidence found evidence that was ignored for decades like the call where if all these things were taken seriously by competent investigators i think this thing could have been wrapped up in a couple months if this was actually focused on and not just botched the whole time sure so we're saying that to answer to the question that i posed is it's all kind of due to the incompetence and the mismanagement of the crime scene and such like that by the investigators right so are we saying that this is um, unintentional mismanagement so it's just they just didn't know what they were doing they made a mess of the crime scene just did a crappy job they weren't smart about it or are we going to say that this was intentional that it was a police cover-up kind of situation which I know is seems kind of silly because we talk about it a lot but at the same time just because we talk about it a lot doesn't mean that it's not untrue yeah that's a big theory that's I've been reading up on a lot and a lot of people do think that there was some corruption and cover-up by the police. And again, we have these allegations that Sheriff Doug Thomas was friends with Marty Smart. He denies it, but there are still rumors out there. And I think it's a little bit a mix of both of incompetence and some slight cover-up in that the police who are investigating it probably didn't do a good job, but then there also could have been a few people, or if not Sheriff, they got the top, who was purposely mismanaging things to kind of take the heat off of his supposed friend, Marty Smart. Yeah, I agree. I think we talked about how at this time there was a lot of police corruption in the area. So an already weakened justice system in the area in conjunction with these possible mob connections through Bo, I think it's there's a pretty high likelihood that there was some intentional police cover up in this scenario yeah i would agree with that now one of the main issues is what was the main motive behind these crimes in the first place who was the main target if there was one and some people again say that was kind of random and that there wasn't really one sole target it was kind of just a free-for-all but others believe that at least one person was the main focus and that seems to either be Tina or Sue, and we'll kind of talk about both. So Tina, some believe that, we've kind of talked about it before, that since the young girl was actually taken away from the, the cabin, that she could have been the main target of the whole attack. There are theories that Tina was abducted either by Marty and Bo or whoever else was responsible for one reason or another, such as child trafficking, something like that. There are questions as to why Tina was taken in the first place and not just killed and left at the cabin if there wasn't something special about her in the first place. All these theories, there really isn't any clues or evidence at all to back up these claims about Tina being the motive behind the killings. 
So as we were kind of talking about earlier, it's pretty easy to make the case that there was something special about her just because she was taken away. But at the same time, beyond guesswork, there's nothing that we could do. There's really no evidence at all to show that Tina was the main target or that she was taken for some purpose at all. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we could speculate all day long. Um, I think, you know, the child trafficking thing is a reasonable explanation, but like you said, we don't really have anything to base that on. There's a million different reasons why she could have been taken away. Right. So next up is Sue, and this is who a lot of people think was the actual main target. Now, Sue seems to have suffered the most physical trauma and is thought to have died last. If this was the case, perhaps the killers were acting to kind of torment her more by killing the others in front of her, including her son Johnny and possibly Tina, if in fact she was killed at the cabin and not elsewhere. Also, Sue was horribly wounded. The rifle barrel was jammed into her face repeatedly, and she was also hit with a hammer across the face, and she suffered several broken teeth and broken cheekbones from the trauma. And finally, she was stabbed with a knife, and eventually one of the wounds pierced the aorta, and she suffocated as her chest cavity filled with blood. So if you take all the physical abuse that she sustained, as well as her possible connections with Marty Smart and his wife, that could have caused the man to plan this murder, it seems pretty plausible to think that Sue was the main focus of the attack, and that the other deaths were either just collateral damage, or to shut up witnesses, or just to cause her more psychological trauma before they actually killed her. Yeah, I think there there's a pretty clear motive for Sue to be the main target. And I think ultimately what could have happened is that Bo and Marty came over to teach her a lesson and teach her a lesson and punish her for messing around with Marilyn and, and Marty's marriage. And they were upset and they wanted to torture her and kill her. And then in comes uh, you know, Tina walks in while they're in the middle of bludgeoning her and then Johnny and Dana walk in too and they're just collateral they just got caught up in right. the massacre it could be yeah yeah so I think there's definitely if you have to pick one of the theories whether it was just kind of random or if it's orientated towards one sole individual I think the only physical evidence we have suggests that Sue Sharp was the main focus and motive behind the murders. So finally, we've kind of talked about them a lot. So the final question is, were Marty and Bo the killers in this case? So as we discussed, there's definitely a ton of evidence and statements about them that would strongly suggest that they are, in fact, the murderers behind this case. I mean, these are the only real suspects we have. And this is a super rural area, very small population, very sparsely populated, low population density. And anything else, if anybody else were responsible for this murders besides these two as a pair or in single, it would just have to be somebody completely random. Right. And that's why it doesn't seem to be any of the theories or suggestions by the police seem to favor that idea that it was random. They all seem to think that it was someone specific in mind, and pretty much everyone assumes that that suspect is Marty Smart. 
So, I mean, just to sum up again, Marty lived right next to Sue. He probably knew that she would be home by herself mostly. Again, he probably didn't plan that Tina and Johnny and Dana would come back. It is known that Marty was prone to violent outbursts. He could grow angry after getting drunk and perhaps was thinking of Sue talking about his wife about their marriage and how he was messing it up. Again, as you just talked about, maybe he wanted to go and teach her a lesson. And finally, he would explain one of the oddest parts about the case and that they would explain why none of the young boys in the back room were murdered. Again, because his son was back there. So that's probably the best answer to me as to why these young boys were left undisturbed completely during this night. So I think when you just take this all into account, it's kind of hard not to at least strongly suspect that Marty Smart is in fact the person behind the Keddie Cabin murders. All that to be said, you know, all these questions are not definitively answered at this time. And the cabin was demolished in 2004, along with other similar structures in the area. So it's not like Cabin 28 in particular was singled out, but several of the cabins were demolished. And some of these questions continue to be unanswered. So for now, all we have to hope on is that these new investigations that's still going on, that one of these days they'll be able to find some type of physical evidence or get some more information from people, perhaps these other persons of interest that they think hold information, perhaps one day soon that we will actually have a more definitive answer on who was behind the murders and can solve this mystery finally. So with that, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you have your own thoughts or feedback on the Keddy Cabin murders, your own ideas or theories about it, please get in touch with us. You can write to us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a message on one of our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We would once again like to thank everybody on Patreon who voted on this poll to help us decide to cover this topic. For any other listeners who are interested in supporting this podcast, you can visit our page at patreon.com slash strange matters, where you can donate a small monthly pledge, and in exchange, you can help us decide on what future episodes to feature, and you can also gain access to monthly exclusive bonus episodes. For this episode, we would especially like to thank our newest patrons, Susan, Everett, and Jen. So thanks a lot, guys, for helping support the show. Finally, we ask if you are listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to us to hear your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everybody. See you guys.